Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey everyone, it's Michael Nesmith on the Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. If I could make a wish, I think I'd pass. I can't think of anything I need, diggers. Christian Swain here, the rock and roll archaeologist. Ho, ho, ho. It's the season. It's here. There's no turning back now. Uh, We just have to plow through to the other side. Now, last week, I was uh, rather humbug on the whole endeavor and expressed it uh, all to you. This week, I'm feeling much, much better about it. Um, You know, it happens like this every year. Stress, 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 grumble, 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 and then... Oh, shit, that's right. It's all good. (laughs) Good people, good times, good year. It's a winter wonderland, a rockin' good eve. It's grandma kissing Santa Claus. It's baby, it's cold outside. Uh, But if you'd rather, I'll drive you home, walk you to the door, and respectfully let you decide if I go home or not. Um, (laughs) But let me say, uh, uh, I'm... First, excited to spend some time with uh, my wonderful family. Uh, We will enjoy our time together uh, while we eat, drink, and be merry. We will have plenty of time with friends, and that, too, is awesome. Um, Plus, uh, we have a great pod family, and I want to take a minute to say thanks to all those who have come into the pantheon of rock and roll here this year. First and foremost... You know, I got to thank you guys, our diggers, because without you, none of us would be here doing what we do. And I think it's fair to say uh, we have picked up a lot of new diggers over the last year. Uh, And and I mean a lot of new diggers. You folks are like that commercial where everyone gets a luxury car with bows and ribbons on them. Uh, It's the best present we all could have ever asked for. And, of course, we hope we have given you um, a lot of great musical uh, edutainment uh, all year long. Uh, that is a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, let me personally give appreciation to all uh, who have worked so hard to provide you guys that musical edutainment. A, a year ago, I could have taken a moment and thanked each and every host, producer, advisor, and guest, but I'm telling you, that would be impossible this year. Um, There are just too many for me to list every name and too many that I might actually miss someone. I I don't want to do that. So, hey, look, we we have 30 shows now uh, located in four countries with a variety of hosts covering numerous subjects. And I anticipate even more rock and roll goodness in 2020. So you guys better get ready. 
But from me, the CEO of this pantheon dedicated to the musical gods, I sincerely thank each and every one of you uh, that has worked so hard uh, to provide these wonderful shows to uh, the diggers. I'm so proud of all of you. I'm humbled that you all want to be on this journey with us and that you all work so hard every day uh, with the same passion that I uh, and the fans have about this music, um, these times, and, and wanting to share that passion with the world. I'm so moved and know this is so important to everyone who works here that I really should change my title from CEO to head priest. Hey, I guess I am the Ayatollah of rock and roller. I do have the head for that title, though I'm, I'm, I might have to bulk up a, a bit more. Okay, okay. Uh, again, ho, ho, ho. Happy holidays. Everyone have a safe and wonderful time. Enjoy the season. Uh, and, uh, you know, since you will be hanging out with us today, don't forget to tell a friend about Pantheon Podcasts. So, let's get to the holiday show. Time to spread out the holly. Ivy and other greeneries, such as mistletoe, were originally used in pre-Christian times to help celebrate the Winter Solstice Festival and ward off evil spirits and to celebrate new growth. So, I cannot think of a better guest to present to you during this holiday season than original Holly, guitarist and lead vocalist Alan Clark. By the way, um, the name The Hollies uh, is a, a bit of a contentious story in the annals of rock and roll. Is it a nod to the holiday greenery or an homage to original rocker Buddy Holly? You know, uh, like those other guys in that other band that Alan and Graham were friends with. Uh, crickets, Hollies, uh, and Beatles, oh my. Uh, now... Uh, the other guy in the debate, Graham, says of the name, uh, it, it's a bit of both, or at least now he says it's a bit of both. But I'll let Alan tell you what he thinks uh, when we get to that in uh, in the interview. Okay, first thing you need to know is that Alan Clark has been retired for 20 years. He's not released an album, nor has he done much playing in the ensuing years, uh, with a few notable exceptions, such as in uh, 2010 when the Hollies were inducted into the Rock and Roll of Fame. Uh, but now he is back, and I, for one, am very happy about that fact, and you should uh, be too, I think. Uh, Alan Clark has a new album out, and it's called Resurgence. Uh, ten new songs from a master, uh, all in a new vein with a new feeling and a new sound for Alan. 
You see, the the main reason he retired back in 1999 was because his voice was fading and he felt he couldn't give those old Holly songs the justice they deserve. And even more than that, Alan's wife, Jennifer, who he has been married uh, to since 1964, was diagnosed with cancer around the same time. Um, as you will hear, uh, he's been quite busy uh, for the past two decades, just not with music. Uh, that was until uh, his son, Toby, introduced him to GarageBand, you know, the software program found on every iPhone that is a pretty powerful recording tool, uh, incidentally, invented by my friend and old Tin Man keyboardist, uh, Gerhard Lengeling, that spurred a, well, a resurgence, and uh, he was off. Uh, once people heard Alan Clark was recording again, the calls came, and without question, an album was going to be released. So, is this a one-off? Uh, a last send-off? Well, uh, let's just talk to Alan and find out, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great pleasure to introduce you to Mr. Alan Clark. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Alan Clark. How is the day in the UK? It's well, it's a little gloomy. Um, it's now ten past five. It's dark, and uh, and everybody's putting Christmas lights up. So that that's about it here, where I am now. Okay, okay. Are you in London? Or are you in the the northern part of the country from where you're from? I'm I'm in the middle of England. I moved from London in 1979. Uh, to move to the country, to bring my kids up in, in the country, let them have a, that sort of life rather than uh, being in London and all its madness and mayhem. So, yeah, I've, I've been out here now for about 45 to 50 years. Oh, nice, nice. A country gentleman now. <laughs> well, n n not so much the gentleman, but country, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, well, let, let me begin with kind of a, a side question that should roll into a, a larger thought on rock and roll in general. You know, mm. you've not toured with the Hollies in decades, um, and then other than the 2010 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Now, the band continues on, uh, yeah. and like a lot of bands from the classic rock era, uh, it tours, uh, and, and I'm sure you don't have an issue with that, but do you ever think that bands like the Hollies from more than 50 years ago would continue even with some of its most critical members or even any members at all, uh, well. being in that, uh, wh wh what do you think of that? Why is there still an appetite for this and how long will it last? I think you'd call it nostalgia. 
You know, I mean, forget about all the groups in, in the, from the 60s upwards. I mean, all the guys, you know, from the 50s, the rock and roll greats. Yeah. You, what you find Elvis Presley impersonators, they go out and they do shows. Now there's uh, Buddy Holly and, uh, you know, a lot of people are doing hologram shows with orchestras and things like that. Yeah, I just so, saw the, you know, the, the Buddy Holly, uh, Roy Orbison one a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Well, you know, that's great for people who never saw them live. Uh, but, you know, it's it's a little different from actually being there and seeing these guys in the moment. You know, you, you can't get a better show than that. And, and anything that you see after that, somebody trying to impersonate a particular guy or group or whatever. Um, it depends on how long ago it was that, you know, they weren't they weren't sort of in the top 20 all the time. But people grow up listening to records people that have never seen and like when groups do go out like that they go to these shows because of the nostalgia and the songs so you know as long as they put on a decent performance i suppose that there's room for that yeah but i, I don't remember uh, you know the benny goodman orchestra um you know continuing on past its prime uh, uh you know or anything like that no but there are people who, who have bands and, and they play that sort of music yeah you know the, the, the big when, band era mm-hmm Sure. I mean, I loved the big band area. I mean, I was born in 1942. So, you know, I went through that with my parents and I was taken to see all the great uh, American shows like Seven Brides of Seven Brothers, West Side Story, Calamity Jane, you know, all those great musicals that I was there sat with my mum loving that music. And that sort of music still means something to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a great nostalgia for those people of that time, as well as rock and roll, you know. Yeah. Every form of music has its vibe for different people. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes people need to or want to when it's passed down to their kids. You know, they, they introduce them to all different sorts of stuff. And when they see there's a show going out that's got that music in, people go and see it. You know, so music never dies in, in, in any form there is in, really. Yeah, and especially, I think, you know, in the last hundred years with the advent of recorded music, the ability mm-hmm. to, you know, share it globally, uh, of which is definitely the case today. I mean, you know, literally you can, you know, grab a, you know, a handheld device and pull up just about any song that's ever been recorded in yeah. a matter of seconds. Is, is that kind of crazy and weird for you? Well, it is really, you know, because uh, in the past, um, when, when I say the past, like when you were collecting records, uh, maybe in the, in the 50s and the 60s, I mean, there's only so much that you could afford. Yeah, yeah, you had to choose, yeah. Yeah, it was expensive to save up like seven or six to buy a 45, and then you had to afford something to play it on. You know, I mean, the sort of family that I came from, I wouldn't say that we were poor or anything like that, but there wasn't a lot of money around to buy as many records as you wanted because it was available there and it was cheap. You know, there wasn't a lot around. There was a lot of groups around doing their individual things, and every group had their own following from a certain set of the audience who always bought their records. So there was always a competition to who got into the charts. But to be able to to get the music that you can get like today on all these machines like Spotify and, you know, all the other guys that are doing all the streaming stuff, I find it difficult myself to actually choose from that sort of thing, to choose what I want to listen to, because there's so much. 
You know, sometimes I feel I might be missing out on something because I can't find it, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, and that is a concern in the industry. It's uh, the music discovery portion. How best to uh, get somebody that likes one thing to uh, perhaps like another. Of course, you know, uh, you know, most of these uh, companies, like you mentioned, uh, have algorithms that are a machine that's trying to help you do that. Uh-huh. That works as well as uh, the way we did it in the old days, which was most mostly word of mouth, uh, if not uh, some sort of a, of a gatekeeper, uh, if you will, uh, like a DJ who uh, we trusted uh, would be playing uh, the cool stuff that uh, would be of interest to us, right? That's true. That's true. But, you know, with this media that you've got now, uh, to be able to choose everything that's possibly there, it's a great piece of machinery that invites you into a lot of music that you may not normally hear by just listening to the radio or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are things that you can search for. Like, you know, you can get the Every Brothers, the whole catalogue. You can get yeah. everybody's that are not around anymore, the whole catalogue to listen to, you know. And that, that is a good thing. It, it means that that kind of music is never forgotten in all its forms. Yeah, yeah. All right, so now I don't want to make you choose one of your favorite children, but I just wonder if you ever go to sleep at night knowing somewhere on the planet a bar band is pulling out their version of Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress. <laughs> well, I've been asked that question so many times. Uh, you know, I, that was just a, a fun thing that just came out of the blue, you know. Uh, I got together with Roger Cook, you know, because I'd met him, like, previously, and we became mates, yeah. and mm-hmm. we used to travel around seeing each other, and we decided to start writing songs together. And, and this particular one song was started, we started writing it down in the air, the air offices, where most of the producers, like uh, George Martin and all that, they all had this office there. And we went into the basement room where Roger used to write most of his songs on a ukulele, which really wasn't very rock and roll. But there you go. <laughs> no, I, no, I, you wouldn't I, think that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I had my Fender Telecaster with me, so I was I was okay. Yeah. And um, and within like three quarters to an hour, we'd written Long Cool Woman. Wow. And it was just one of those songs that we thought, oh, this is a great rock and roll. It's got the riff and it's, it's got the guts and the lyrics and everything. And we never really thought of it, of it being a single in any way whatsoever. But fortunately, the Hollies were recording an album. So I took the song in and played it to Tony and Bobby and everybody else that was there. And they said, well, that's a good track that can go on the album. That the album was Distant Light, uh, became Distant Light after that. I think you'd left, and, and they actually put the song on uh, with the next album, right? Well, no, it was on the Distant Light album. Oh. And the album was going to be released. Uh, we did finish the album, uh, Distant Light. And um, that particular song, when I played the riff and everything, they said, you play the guitar. So I played the guitar. So this my guitar on there with Tony uh, overdubbing. And there's Bobby on drums and Bernie Calva on bass. Uh, there's no harmonies. The producer wasn't there, so he didn't produce it. There was just us and the engineer. And we laid it down within half an hour. I think I did about one take vocals, and we did about two takes on actually doing the music. We strung it together. We put Slap Echo on it, and we and we said, right, there's there's an album track. And we put it on the album. In between it coming out as a single, I did approach the guys to maybe let me do an album on my own, Solo. which mm-hmm. they didn't think it was a good idea, mm-hmm. um, obviously, because Graham had done that and, and gone off and been a success <laughs> and, and hadn't come back. Well, hadn't come back for about 20 years, but he did eventually. 
And, uh, you know, so they, they were quite worried about me leaving the band if I was a success. And I said, no, that wouldn't be the point. Don't worry about it. And he said, no, if you want to do an album, you'll have to leave the group. Mm. So I left. And to the period that I was actually getting songs together, and I wish I had kept Long Cool Woman for myself. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I didn't realize yeah, right. <laughs> I didn't realize what was going to happen. But yeah. I got a phone call from a, a music publisher in New York, and they asked me, could they publish the song? And I said, what song? And they said, Long Cool Woman is racing up the charts. You need someone to help you with it. And they told me it was Long Cool Woman. And, well, the rest is history. Right, right. That's amazing. Uh, you know, I, I hear a lot of these stories of like, you know, it's just inspiration that came out uh, in a short period of time. And boom, uh, the, you know, I was surprised as everybody else was. So mm -hmm. uh, it's still uh, an amazing song. And uh, like I said, it's a staple in the bar band uh, world. I can, <laughs> I can guarantee you that. So it certainly gets you up and dancing, doesn't it? It certainly does. Yeah. <laughs> and make you wonder, what exactly is he talking about here? I, I, I You know, it's one of those famous songs where people fuck up the lyrics uh, yeah. constantly. <laughs> well, let me tell you, let me tell you, because when I actually recorded it, I was putting the vocal on and I sang it. And uh, and because it was like in two takes, the, the second take, we couldn't make our mind which one was the right one. So we chose one and it went out. And then I suddenly realized going through the songs, that one of the lines in the song was supposed to be uh, jumping out of doors, uh, jumping out of doors and windows. And I actually sang Jumping Out of Doors and Tables. Oh, my gosh. You're right. You're and right. That, and that's it. <laughs> it, just, it doesn't make sense. It did, but, I, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, but I've never been asked about it. You know. <laughs> really? So jumping out of windows and tables, you're right. Nobody's going to jump out, out of, of doors a table. And tables. Of course. It should, of course. Have been, it should have been jumping out of doors and windows. <laughs> right, 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 right. Oh, well, all right. So uh, when I sing it, I'm going to use the correct lyrics from now on. So. <laughs> no, they are the correct lyrics now. So long. 50 yeah, years is yeah. a long time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's been 20 years since you left the music business. So first, yeah. we want to know why. Why did you ever leave? Well, you know, when you've been with a group for 35, nearly 40 years, and you're doing the sort of songs that you're recording in the, in the 60s and 70s, I was a lot younger then, and, and actually doing all those songs for a certain length of time, um, it did damage my vocal cords. Mm -hmm. So it was getting to a point where, you know, they were talking about lowering keys and doing this and doing that. So there was a, a lot of talking about helping me getting through a show. And it came to a point where I suddenly said to myself, well, look, you know, this has got to stop because I'm not really doing the thing that I loved doing in the 60s and the 70s. And I'm just repeating myself. And it's really not the right way to end a career. So we had a talk together and we did agree that it wasn't really fair, me going out there and, and maybe ending up croaking away. Like, can I say that there are a few people that are out there now doing a bit of croaking yeah. and uh, yeah. will not be forgotten about that. So yeah. I didn't really want to be remembered as somebody that was hanging on, you know, no matter what. So I did decide to leave in 99. But at the same time, my, my wife, Jenny, she got uh, breast cancer again for the mm. floor. This was the second time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to let our diggers know, you've been married to Jennifer for almost 60 55 years. Huh? Years. Yeah. 55 years. Yeah. 55. Yeah. Wow. That's great. 
Yeah, but in the end of 1999, you know, we we got the news. Yeah. Uh, so I said to myself, well, you know, that's a that's a, a bigger reason than losing your voice. You've got to stick around now and and see what happens. Uh, you know, in, in the future. Uh, and when you've had cancer twice, you look at it in a different way. Yeah. Uh, but luckily enough for me, you know, Jenny's still with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hasn't come back, and we've had a great time from that time onwards. Fantastic. And um, it gave me the opportunity to uh, to sort of be with my family, uh, doing the things that maybe I should have been doing all the time that I was roaming around the country, etc. Mm-hmm. And it, it helped me to be uh, together with my grandchildren, etc., etc., and and all the other things that happen in your life in 20 years. You know, um, my daughter got cancer, and you know, oh. we we had to go through the whole thing again. So yeah, my my life has, has been full of tears and and joy and and all the other things that uh, mm-hmm. that happen in a lifetime. Yeah. But you know, it's been great. Um, I never sang in the bathroom. I never tried to sing any of my songs for twenty years. I just got in touch with uh, you know with what living's all about, and, and that's being happy. You know, out of the rock star life, very much so. The the average Englishman, you uh, <laughs> uh, that life, uh, which is very different than the life you were used to prior. It, it certainly certainly is. Yeah. Still. So now, yeah. uh, vocally, I can completely understand not just the fact that physically it's difficult, but um, I, I think you were also, you know, suggesting that, uh, you know, playing those songs that many times, the lyrical feeling of what it was when uh, when it was created versus, uh, you know, being in your 40s or 50s uh, may not uh, have suited that. But are you feeling better about it now? Are you feeling better about your vocals now? Well, let, let, let's read this album that uh, was a, a, a big surprise to me, never mind everybody else, because, you know, it wasn't what I was working towards at all. This was just something that came up uh, one day when I just thought of a set of a lyrics and, uh, and, it, and it went from there. But because I'm singing five notes lower with the kind of songs that I'm writing now, it's easier for me to sort of do these songs. Mm. But now that I've got some sort of success coming along, people are saying, well, are you going to go out on the road? Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, these are big questions, you know, about what I'm going to do in the future. And I'm thinking that because of the band that I was in before and all the songs that I sang on, I would be expected to actually maybe sing those songs within whatever show I was going to do. So if I did that, it would be a different kind of, of he and heavy. Maybe my voice would suit better he and heavy now because he's very soulful. Yeah. And do the air that I breathe in a different key, in a different yeah. way. I don't think that's so, a problem. So, you know, that's not a no for me coming out and doing things. because well, you're I, just talking I think about that, it gets me excited, Alan. <laughs> well, I think that I could, I could reproduce the songs that would have more meaning uh, to me. Mm. I mean, I don't think that I would be singing Bus Stop. And I don't think, or Carrie Ann or Jennifer Eccles. I think well, I'd be singing more songs that have a, a meaning for, that, that would suit my voice of today. Well, reinterpretation, you know, you know, uh, you know Bruce Springsteen uh, just did that big Broadway uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, thing. And, uh, you know, he reinterpreted a lot of those songs uh, from, looked, that sounded looked, one I, way in the 20s and another way in the 50s. And, yes, I bring Bruce up because I know you're a big fan. I, I love him. I love the guy. Yeah. 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 All right. So Resurgence, uh, a yeah. great title, by the way. Are you feeling it? Well, it's my wife that thought of that. Yeah, one of the tracks on the album is called I'm Coming Home. Yeah which the, the particular time of me finishing the album, 
um, I thought, well, yeah, that's really what it means. I'm coming back. As the, as the lyric says itself, I'm coming back to something, you know, that I thought I'd never do, but now I am doing. And then uh, three or four people came out with an album with like, I'm coming home in this sort of, uh, you know, what they called the album. So I felt as if there were too many coming home albums at that particular time. And then my wife just said, well, call it resurgence, because that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah, You're coming back. You know, you're being you're being born again, doing something that you like to do, but in a different way, resurgence, and that was it. Yeah, Alan, that you were born to do. So yeah. uh, it's nice to have you back. So I understand you had to be coaxed into returning, uh, and that your son introduced you to uh, uh, the simple recording software GarageBand because you kind of had, as you you mentioned here, a lyric or a song uh, that was kind of rolling around in your head, right? Well, you know, it's crazy because, you know, when you don't do anything for 18 years, uh, you know, I I was presented with one of the Buddy Holly Education Foundation guitars in the early days. Do you know what they are? Mm -mm, No, tell us. Well, a guy in England who loves Buddy Holly greatly, Mm -hmm. um, he decided that he wanted to do something for like a charitable works with with Buddy involved. Mm -hmm. And so what he did, there's an iconic Buddy Holly guitar that he wrote most of his songs on, that he made a leather jacket for it. The the Fender Strat? No, no, this is a Gibson. Okay. It's a Gibson, yeah, and uh, and he made a, a leather jacket for it, which he, he carved the leather and he put most, some of the lyrics and all that on the guitar. So what this guy did, he had twenty five of them made, and what he did, he, he actually took uh, the frets from the original and put one fret in each of those guitars. Now then, he actually approached, well, he approached myself and Graham, more or less at the same time, and asked us to get involved uh, as patrons. And I was given one, and Graham was given one. And uh, the the thing is that you you keep them for two years, and and you use them uh, in a way that would benefit the the foundation uh, monetarily for to actually put money into uh, building a studio and and hospital wards and things like that uh, in America. Um, oh, where Buddy's from, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in in the name of Buddy Holly, and that was the guitar. Funnily enough that I took down off the wall and uh, and tried to write music to my first lyric. Wow, okay. Yeah, previously I'd sent it to a, a lady called Carla Olson, uh, who's, you know, and I always think she's a female Bruce Springsteen. She's a great lady. We're good friends, and so her husband uh, is a great friend of mine, Saul Davis, and I asked them to put music to it first. I just sent the lyrics, which was a poem, and she sent me the song back, and, and I thought it was great. But I didn't think it was like the way I wanted it to be. So I took the guitar down off the wall and I started strumming and I more or less got a bit of the song all finished. And I thought, well, um, I have to carry this a little bit further. I need someone to help me with it. Now, i had done that in the past and usually being helped with someone else is when you've got two other writers with you. And sometimes the song doesn't really turn out the way you want it, but that's the way it goes. This one, I thought, well, I'm going to try and do this all myself. Then I looked at Garage Band, which you know is, is on bloody everybody's computer, and and you know I never I, I never thought the need to actually use it really, uh-huh. you know, being in the music hall at length of time. But my son Toby, who teaches music and performing arts, and is a great musician himself, and he writes songs, and I'd seen him using this thing down at his studio, and you know all it looked like to me was wiggly lines, you know. <laughs> yeah, the the sound wave, right, right, right. Yeah, right. It looked pretty alien. I mm. thought. God, that frightens me to death. 
So anyway, he came up and he said, this is what you do, you know, and uh, he got two tracks up and showed me how to sing into the mic inside the computer itself. And it was really great because I could play around with the echo. And the echo made me actually get into singing again, you know, because it gave me that little bit of uh, of edge, you know, and I loved it. And I I just loved doing it. And and it became a hobby. Mm. Uh, And that hobby came into me actually starting from two tracks to get into five tracks. Then I I had to buy a focus right. I had to buy a Rode microphone. I had to buy speakers. (laughs) I had to buy this, you know, and I, and I got into my own little dream work, you know, just making sounds all on my own, you know, and and I felt really, really good and it kept flowing. And, you know, when I got to about eight or nine songs, I thought, well, maybe I need to do this a little better. Uh, so I decided that I'd get in touch with an old friend of mine. His name is Francis Haynes. And he was with the Hollies in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. And he's a brilliant pianist. And I used to make very good demos with him. He had his own studio. And whenever I'd written something, I'd take it to him to produce it and illustrate it, with, you know, with all the wonderful things that he could do. So right. I decided mm-hmm. that I would get in touch with him, which I did. And he came up and I played him the stuff. And he says, well, he said, that's great to a point, but let's take everything that you've done down to my studio. And instead of you in garage band, we'll put it in logic and, uh, and we'll make yeah, Which is garage band on steroids, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, to me, when I got down there and I started doing this stuff, I thought I'm really having a good time. And I think it was because I was having a good time and it wasn't serious that it turned out like it was, it was. just fun, just just 100 yeah, percent fun. It really was. Yeah. No business. No business. No at all. idea. There was no pressure. No, don't, just, no deal. I don't want a deal. Yeah. I don't want any pressure. I'm mm-hmm. not going to go out. I just love doing these. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe loads of people will cover this stuff. Now, right, unbeknown right. to me, my friend Saul Davis um, had been playing this stuff around to people because I was so excited. You know, when I finished something, I sent it to Saul and say, what do you think of this? And he'd send some really good comments coming back. Hey, man, you're in the groove, you know, that sort of thing. And I thought, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's joking. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and honestly, nothing was supposed to happen. And then uh, Hartwig Musak, the CEO of BMG, rang me up and he said, I don't believe you've got an album. Well, she said, I know you've got an album because I've heard some of it. I said, oh, well. <laughs> Somebody sent us some stuff, right? I said, well, you know, why are you ringing me? And he said, well, come down and have and speak to me. So I went down to, he, he came to London and we met up and we had a long chat. And he says, well, I want to release the album. And I said, well, that's great. You know, please do it. But, um, mm-hmm. okay, before you do that, I'll tell you what I won't want to do. You know, when he said he wanted to release the album, a whole lot of things came into my brain about, oh, my. Well, the, the pressure. Oh, yeah, the pressure all of a sudden yeah, arrives. Do I need right. that? And, you know, I thought, well, no, mm-hmm. I don't really need yeah. it. You know, my life is complete as it is. You know, do I need to get back into that madness? But he, you know, he said to me, don't worry, Alan, you know, you're a legacy artist. You're wonderful. I want to put this out. More or less, said, we don't really care, you know, what happens to it. We just want to put it out there. And, you know, we want to produce it. And we want you to, to have the PR and all that and do this job for you. And then I says, well, what I don't want to do, I don't want to tour. Because that was the main thing that worried me. And he says, don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. He says, you don't have to if you don't want but, you know, as things have progressed and, you know, and getting back into the business in a way where you, you meet all the people on the radios that you did years ago 
and, and all they were saying was, oh, this is great, Al, I bet you're going to go out and really enjoy doing this. And the worry about doing Holly songs and talk maybe even about getting back with Graham. And it was just a whirlwind of thoughts that had been going through my brain for quite a while now. But that has all settled down. And now I'm making sort of semi-commitments to getting it together to do things, to maybe go out and go on the road. So, you know, it's very, very exciting. We'd love to have you back, Uh, certainly uh, over here in the States. And I'm sure the UK feels the same. So I got a couple of questions from what you've just told me first. You know, there is, um, I I guess, a a bit of a question of the name, the Uh Hollies. You know, one camp says it was because you guys had to make a decision at a gig that was near Christmas and it was chosen for that. And the other camp uh, says that, no, it was a a direct homage to Buddy uh, and the crickets and you guys chose the hollies and i think graham says well it's a little of both you know um so and i don't want to get into that story although if please give us your interpretation but what i love about it is that once again buddy was an inspiration to you because of this guitar that you had gotten which started you back into writing and producing music again that's just awesome it was weird it really was it was weird and it's and actually... Yeah, cosmic, cosmic. I love <laughs> oh, that's, that. That sounds yeah. very 60s. They, they used to call it far... They used to say, yeah, that's far out, man. That's really far out. Yeah. Same thing, yeah, far sure. out, man. Far <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so which one is it? Is it the Christmas story or is it Buddy? You know, story? I think that when you ask each individual in the Hollies that were there at that particular time, they <laughs> right. have no idea. <laughs> they, but you're right. I mean, I do remember it was Christmas. It was a place called the Oasis uh, where Graham and I sort of used to go as a duo to play at times, you know, even earlier than the Hollies and things like that. And uh, it was coming up to Christmas. At that particular time, we were called the Dominators of Rhythm. And mm. and the group was made okay. up of, um, you know, it, it was Eric Haydock. It was the drummer that was with us. Vic Flick was the guitarist. And um, I can't remember the drummer's name. I should do, but I can't. But never mind. Anyway, it was made up of more or less of five people. Your version of Blues Incorporated. <laughs> more or less. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> anyway, we did the gig as the Hollies. We actually got to the Oasis, and the guy says, well, what are we going to call you? And we, we didn't want to be called the Dominators of Rhythm. So this was a question that we hadn't thought about. Now, how I recollect it was that it was Christmas. There was a lot of holly bushes around, you know, in, in decorations and things yeah, like yeah. that. And and I think that um, someone shouted, call us the deadbeats. And that was, no, no, don't call us the deadbeats. And... <laughs> yeah, that would have been a bad choice, right? That's a bad choice. And I'm sure, I'm sure that I said, let's call ourselves the Hollies. But then again, it may not have been that. But that's <laughs> that how I that, But that's how that's I remember it. That's how you it. remember it. All right. Yeah. And then the second thing that I took is I, I want to ask, so you've been gone for 20 years, and yeah. I experienced a bit of this myself. I took a 10-year break from playing music uh, in my 30s, and uh, the DAW show, showed up, the DAWs, the, uh, the, these music composition software pieces like GarageBand Logic and Pro Tools. Yeah. And so it was like magic. I want to see if – did you feel that? I mean, after a 20-year absence, all of a sudden, you know, you're making music in this whole new – format that opens doors that you might have thought were previously closed. Did you feel that when you started using GarageBand? Well, I was completely in control. 
you know, I didn't need anybody else other than, well, as I say, my son actually showing me the techniques right. of getting well, the, the software, tactics. how to use the software, right? Yeah, and you know what was so good about it that I learned from my mistakes. You know, which which I think is the best way to actually to learn these sort of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We learn through failure, right? Yeah, you do, and I was really enjoying it. But, you know, what it gave me was that I have to do this a bit better than what it is. So, you know, I went from knowing three chords to five chords. That's good. (laughs) Improvement. Rock and roll chords. (laughs) You know, you you can write anything with rock and roll chords. And now I bought a new bass. Now, I've never played bass in my life, but I I now have a, a Fender Mustang bass, which I've just unwrapped, and I can't wait to actually start putting bass on some of the stuff that I'm doing now. Nice. So that is the difference to what the last two years have made to me. To what for music, mm-hmm. it's got me back into wanting being into writing stuff, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and doing it in my own time. And lyrics that I use, sometimes people would say to me, "Oh, that lyric doesn't fit there." And you know, this is like everything is me, other than you know, getting Francis down to actually properly produce them, you know, into the proper sound, save them to mixing and then everything else that happens to it after but that. But the creative process is just the 100% creative process, I'm, I'm sat now looking at my computer, can't wait to get back to a song that I'm writing already, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, well then we better move anywhere. on. We better move on <laughs> so I can get you back to... <laughs> it may not go anywhere, but it doesn't matter. No, yeah, yeah. You know? Well, uh, gosh, I'm so glad you're having so much fun with this and uh, yeah. every day it sounds like you're you're expanding your horizons on the possibilities that you thought the door had closed on you. And I just Most think that's great. Well, there is a track on the album called A Door Is Slowly Closing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and one of those thoughts was that, you know, if I don't do this, I might never do it again. Right. Right, right. Well, I'm glad that door uh, was still open. So, you know, now with the the new album, you don't have the sweet sound vocally of what you and Graham Nash came up with as kids, but you have this new gravitas that I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure ever existed in the Hollies. And my first thought when I heard the opening track, Journey of Regret, was Warren Zevon. And I hope you take that as a compliment. I do, because I love Warren Zevon. I loved, you know, Werewolves of London and uh, the album that that was on uh, and I didn't actually get into a little bit later but when I did hear his stuff it sounded to me that the guy you know he was so different from everybody else even his vocals were different and the way that he was actually writing these tunes about things that people never wrote about before yeah now I, I've not tried to emulate that in, in any way whatsoever no I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that it just there's this sort of um, you know I could throw in uh, other of these uh, more gravelly uh, uh, sincere compassionate voices uh you know leonard cohen for example even if your skills as a vocalist are uh, slightly diminished i don't mean leonard cohen's delivery but there's just this you know frank sinatra is uh, another great this phrasing this uh this feeling Mm -hmm. of weight 
that I'm not sure existed in some of your previous work that just it just no. seeps this way out of this new album. Well, you know, I wasn't 77 when I did that <laughs> earlier stuff. <laughs> right, right, right. right <laughs> and, you right. know, you have to use what you've got. You got me there. Right, right, right. You know, well, it's, it's, it's working. It's working for you is my point. Well, I'm glad it's working for you. Yeah, I'm just surprised that people have, have, have talked to it. But, no, I'm pleased about that, you know, because it makes me want to venture into more uh, mm -hmm. of a way of singing like that. Yeah, and I you think know? you could take uh, some of those Holly songs and reinterpret them to fit your, you know, your current experience than anything else. Uh, you know, change up a, a key here and there and present those songs in a, in a new viable way. Well, I think that, you know, lyrically, those songs, I mean, I'm sure that I could probably now put more emotion in, into those songs now, knowing what I, I know now that I didn't know then. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done a lot of things. Yeah. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah that, that, that is something to look forward to, that I am actually going down to see my producer next week to actually sit down with him at the piano and find a key that I'd be happy doing those songs in and see what we can build around it, you know, mm -hmm. and make it slightly more bluesy for some you know, and, and the others do the same thing with the others. Great, great. So one of the songs on the album returns us back to that five nine black cat, beautiful, tall uh, woman. Um, <laughs> and a little Bobby Dylan influence in there. I love to hear, um, I, gosh, I'd love to hear Alan Clark sing Ballad of a Thin Man, uh, you know, <laughs> listening to you nowadays. So, um, right. but why did you return to uh, Long Cool Woman on this album? Well, you know, with Long Cool Woman, it's been part of my life for a long time now it's been a lifesaver in times you know and um i always thought that there should have been a follow-on uh but you know it was 1971 72 uh when he came out so yeah. that, that's quite a long time but i thought well no this song is still popular so people do know what the story is and at that particular time i was writing a song with a phrase in it which was sometimes the right way is the wrong way to go uh which a lot of people don't understand but I have to explain to, to people with this song, the idea of taking that lyric from one and putting it into the Longco Woman's Back in Town, which I wrote with this lyric in mind. Uh, the idea was that, you know, the DA man thought he'd, he'd found the true love. And, you know, he said to her, you're going to be OK with me. I'll take care of you. Went away with her and uh, no one knew what happened. So I thought that I would actually finish it off by saying that the Longco Woman uh, because she was that kind of woman anyway, got fed up with the DA man and just left him and said, now you're on your own and I want to go back to what I did before. So for the DA man, it was the wrong decision he made. Uh -huh. So sometimes <laughs> sometimes when you think it's the right way to go, it turns out to be the wrong way to go. Right, right, right. And if that explains it, sometimes the right way is the wrong way to go. Because, you know, in the end, he blew it, but she right. didn't. And there's no issue with looking back on a, on a song in your career. David Bowie did it three times with uh, Major yeah. Tom, you know, with, uh, you know, Space Oddity, Ashes to Ashes, and then, you know, Black Star. So no problem with there. Now, I think, like, like I said, you know, I mentioned uh, Leonard Cohen and I mentioned uh, mm -hmm. Warren Zevon, but also Bob Dylan. And, and I know you guys did an entire album of Dylan songs in 1969. Yes, we did. How did that come about? What a great idea. But I know there was some controversy about it, but it sounds like it, it was a wonderful idea. And, and other people had done similar things. I don't know about a full album, but Dylan had obviously been covered many times by 69. Sure. 
Well, you know, well, we used to do these Dylan songs on stage with Graham, you know. Uh, the times the hour changing that we did, we, we recorded that on some little thing that we bought in Japan. And the, the sound was so great that we decided we'd put it out. And, and the idea was back from our producer that he heard us to, you know, uh, blowing in the wind, which we'd done on a few shows and things. So we decided that we would uh, do a, a whole album of uh, Buddy Holly songs because there were so many songs to choose from, you know, and, and I thought that the you know, Holly sound and all those would have been great. Now, forget that there was a, a lot of weird things happening around that time. The, you know, Graham was, was making certain sounds about him wanting to do things that, you know, that we were not doing. Yeah. And, uh, and he also wanted to have his own name on the songs that he wrote. So he split the writing team up. And, uh, and that was okay by me. I, I, you know, I didn't mind about anything like that. And he went into his experience of, uh, of being like West Coast. He, he went the whole hog. Yeah, out to California. You know, you were in the captains and, and all that sort of thing, of which we did as well. But I think my heart was only halfway into that, to be quite yeah. honest. Yeah. Yeah, you didn't ever <laughs> no, go full hit. No. Huh? <laughs> no, I've got a wife and I've got two kids. You know, right, I know what yeah. changing nappies is all about, man. And that's got nothing to do with being, you know. <laughs> so, you know. I mean, <laughs> no this, free love for you, weird, right. right. <laughs> there was a lot of weird things going on. So I think within Graham's mind, there was no way that, he wanted really to be involved in doing a Dylan album when he knew that he'd got these guys that he was going to make these great sounds with just, you know, waiting on the other end of the line, right. uh, of which we found out later on that that's, that's the thing that was happening. Yeah. And when he left, we thought, well, we'll finish the album. And we got Terry Sylvester in. And uh, Terry Sylvester, the greatest job ever mm-hmm. in replacing mm-hmm. Graham mm-hmm. And, and doing what he did on the hits from first first record like from sorry suzanne onwards you know so i can say with complete honesty you know the vocally i didn't uh, i didn't miss him right 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 vocally it, well you know? maybe it was time to move on and even though it was probably uh, difficult uh, at the time that uh, that graham left and uh, you know went on to form uh, csn and why uh but uh, well it, it took a lot of understanding you know, but there was a lot of weird things happening when I was in America as well, which I, you know, which I turned a blind eye to because I didn't think was going as far as it was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he did make friends with Stephen Stills and David Crosby and, and uh, Neil. But, you know, I was friends with them before anyway, with him. You know, it, it wasn't as if he was going up with those guys on his own. You know, I was involved in that crowd as well. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. But um, my heart wasn't in actually leaving home. And, uh, you know, Graham left everything. You didn't want to move to, uh, to L.A. And, uh, and, no, and, and no. all of that. No, it would have killed me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would have died. <laughs> but I don't think I could have coped with, uh, with all that stuff that was going on, you know. At that time? No, at that time, no. Right, I, was, right. I wasn't into that. Are you suggesting that you may have ended up uh, a tragedy like uh, Jimmy Janice and Jim uh, around that period? I think so. I think, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Wow. All right. Back to England uh, yeah. for you and the rest of the band. And Graham goes off and does his uh, his thing. So you grew up in the north of England. Let me see if I got this right from an American. Uh, a Lancatarian. Is that right? <laughs> a Lancatarian. I got That's it. Did I, I get it down. right? Did I get it? Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. It's Lancashire is a county. Yeah. 
if you come from Manchester, it means you're a Mancunian. A Mancunian. Oh, okay. A Mancunian. <laughs> so you were a Mancunian. Yeah, as the Beatles were Liverpudlian. Yes, yes, yeah. or Scousers, as most people say. But... Scousers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Graham and I came from Salford. Okay. So we were Salfordians. Salfordians. <laughs> <laughs> gets confusing, doesn't it? <laughs> it gets, for us Americans, yes. Now my yeah, head is yeah. spinning. So I believe you, you know, are a war baby, uh, born in 42. Um, yeah. So what was your young life? life like uh, in the North Country uh, growing up after the war? Well, I don't remember much of the of the years um, really? preceding. Look, you know, I mean, I was born into a family of four sisters and a brother and my mom and dad and I had a grandma and we lived in a tenement house, when I say a tenement, um, with three bedrooms and uh, a front room a drawing room and a kitchen and a cellar mm-hmm. and a toilet outside in uh, a yard. And we had one tap in the house, which was cold water. So I, I lived in that house with my family Pretty until I was until I was 21 years of age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I never felt deprived of anything. Uh, I never went hungry. I was always clothed. Because I know from my sisters telling me stories about how great my dad was going out looking for work, because he was a laborer, and uh, he looked after the family, and he was very stern. Um, I, I respected him greatly. He taught me the manners that that I've got now, and I can't really say that I felt that I was deprived from what other kids were, were because the whole street was full of, of kids like me. Mm-hmm. You know, that played outside on cobble streets and things like that, kicking a can, you know, instead of playing football. So, no, I, I had a very, very happy childhood thanks to the family that I had. You know, being the youngest, I was really looked after well. Ah, oh, you're the baby in the family. I, I was the baby. Ah, yeah. yeah, I was always the first in the tin bath. Oh, yes. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. What was your first introduction to music? Were, you, were your fans uh, big uh, music fans of the day? Um, well, my mum was uh, was a great lover of musicals. And um, I know that my sisters, were, they used to call them Bobby Soxes. Yeah. You know, yeah, they used Bobby Sox and, and that was like Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. and, you know, Mel Torme or yeah, all the Bobby great crooners of that yeah, particular yeah, time. Yeah. They were into that sort of music. But, you know, we didn't have a gramophone player in the house. We didn't have anything to play music on. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was just the radio that we listened to where we got our first solid music in the late 40s, which were big bands and things. But I used to go to what you used to say in, in those days. I used to go to the pictures with my mum whenever there was any sort of musical shows on. Mm-hmm. And that was where I think that I, I really got into music in a way that I loved songs. You know, every street's a boulevard in all New York. Every street's a highway of your dreams. I wanted to go and see New York because uh-huh. of that song. Uh-huh. You know, and all the other stuff, you know, seeing all the dance routines in, in Seven Brides, Seven Brothers. I just loved the movement. And no business like show business and the razzmatazz and the magic and the color because, you know, life was very black and white in those days. Yeah, there was a lot of um, rationing. Uh, you guys had uh, ration cards. Oh, yeah, we yeah. had to, yeah, for sweets, we used to take a coupon to the shop and, and that was it, you know. Mm-hmm. So these big movies from America just yeah, oh, really I know. flipped your lid, huh? Wonderful. 
Well, the funny thing is, like, you know, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, one of my favorite ones, like Howard Keel yeah. was the main guy in that, and Seven Dancers. And uh, we were doing a show called The Hullabaloo in America. Yep, yep. And I was sat watching a dance troupe, which I know one of the dancers was one of the dancers in Seven Brides. So he was one of the brothers. And I can't remember. He was the little blonde kid. He was the youngest. Hmm. Anyway, I was watching him because of that and the, and the memory of Seven Brides, Seven Brothers. And someone tapped me on the shoulder and I turned around and he was Howard Keel. And I couldn't believe it. And I thought, I said, Howard Keel. And he said, you're one of my favorite singers. Wow. And I've never, ever forgotten that. Oh, that's nice. You see, the difference between sitting in a theater when you're like 12 years old or 10 years old and you're looking up at this beautiful guy singing these great songs and all the other dancing, and then many years later he's tapping you on the shoulder saying, you're one of my greatest singers. Don't forget things like that. But music... Well, Alan, I could, I could say the same thing right now. So I'm having that exact feeling uh, talking to you. So you know, <laughs> just a, a fabulous singer, you know, that I grew up with. And here I am talking. So I, I can understand what uh, what it must have felt for you. Oh, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. All right. So you met Graham Nash. I, I think you yeah. were both six. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was moving house from one part of Salford to another part of Salford. And, uh, and so I had to start a new school. And I think it was my grandma that took me to meet the headmistress, who then took me to a class. And I think Graham remembers it more than I do. But uh, I was stood at the front of the class and the teacher said, does anybody have a seat that the spare that so Harold Clark can sit next to them? And, and Graham stood up and said, you can sit here, miss. And that's when I met Graham Nash. Very nice. Very nice. So when did you yeah. guys uh, know you wanted to be pop stars? I don't think we thought about that for a long, long time. You know, I mean, we were buddies right from the start. And we did sing at, um, you know, at, at the school. I think the first thing that we did was uh, The Lord is My Shepherd. And Graham sang harmony with it, you know, which mm -hmm. was unknown at that particular time mm -hmm. but you know we piled out kids in the street played in the street i went to his house i ate at his house he came down my house and, and that sort of childhood we went to the same school and until he was 11 and then he got the 11 plus which was it meant he could go to grammar school so for the four or five years after that we didn't see each other as much as we should but the times that we did see each other from being 14, we were both 14, and Lonnie Dorgan came on the scene. Yeah, Skiffle, and, the Skiffle and, King. And that yeah. changed everything for a lot of people. It changed a lot of things for John Lennon, Paul McCartney, yeah. uh, even down to Freddie and the Dreamers. Yeah. You know, and it mm -hmm. changed everybody. Yeah, Rock Island Line, uh, right. Oh, <laughs> what a song. Yeah. That's one of my favorite songs. Oh, it really yeah. Is. Yeah, yeah. But, it's, you know, uh, but for, you know, three chords. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, certainly one of the first uh, over there that, uh, you know, captured that rock and roll experience in an English way that you guys could identify. He stole all the songs. Let's, let's be true about this. He went over to the States and, yeah. and he picked the songs like Cumberland Gap, you know, uh, yeah. Bring a Little Water, Sylvie, all those sort of things, which, again, was the Southern songs, really, weren't yeah, they? The, yeah, you know, the, they were from the Deep the South black sort of thing. Right, right. Yeah. So he brought them over and put them in. In such a way that everybody could do it. Yeah. Oh, so. and that, yeah. And you guys woke up the next day going, "Well, geez, I can do that uh, as well." And then that was the the explosion of skiffle, right? Well, first of all, we had to get the guitars. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I mean, we couldn't afford them as 14-year-olds, you know, so we had to sort of bow down and get on our knees and beg for these things. <laughs> but luckily enough, I mean, my dad bought me one and his dad bought him one. And there we were. It didn't take us long to sort of mimic the chords to what we was hearing yeah. off the radio. Yeah. And... um we became the two teams. Yeah. And then I think you guys also, and I think it's obvious in uh, the singing, is uh, your big acolytes of the Everly Brothers, right? Yeah. Yeah, that blood harmony. It's it's really interesting that you guys, well, I guess if you grew up with each other from the time that you were six, it's pretty close to the, the blood harmonies that you get with the people like the Everlys. Yeah. Well, you know, I could then, and I could probably do now, but yeah, I could sing any type of song. You know, whether it be ballad, whether it be rock and roll, you know, whether it be, you know, anything that needs any sort of emotion put on. I always did it. You know, my, I didn't have to think about it. You know what I mean? It was natural. It was and, all organic. Yeah. And the same thing with Graham. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to think about it. Whenever I hit a note, he hit the harmony. Right. On top. Right. You know, we could start singing a song and, and mm -hmm. within like going through it twice. Mm -hmm. It was perfect. You know? Yeah. Uh, so when we did, first of all, the Abbey Brothers. I think we were in the dance hall called the Lindale, and, and all of a sudden it was wake up little Susan. We thought, what the hell is this? You know, and we looked at each other and we thought, bloody hell, this is a great song. And and we started following them and doing their type of songs in the act that we had in one of the many sort of names. Leading up to that, right? Yeah, the, the Levins, mm -hmm. Ricky and Dane Young. <laughs> you know, we were always a duo. Right. You know, so it was you and Graham. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That, that was it. Yeah. I was going to say that, you know, the Everly's were playing in Manchester uh, one year. I think oh. it must have been in uh, 17. Mm -hmm. So we went to the show and, and it was absolutely fabulous. And we didn't know where the Everly Brothers were staying. So we thought we'd go and stand outside the most expensive hotel in Manchester because that's where they had to be staying. You know, they'd be millionaires, wouldn't they? <laughs> so <laughs> we, I'm, I'm been betting out this there. story doesn't go that way. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's what we thought, you know? That's what we thought. You know, all those people that were on television or anything, they're all millionaires. Oh, so, right. Yeah, but we've stood outside this hotel for about two hours, and we thought, mm, they're, not, they're not staying here. And fortunately for us, you know, two minutes later, they came walking up the street, and they stopped, and they chatted to us for about 25 minutes, and we told them we thought they were great and what we were doing. They wished us the best of luck, and... Um, we went home. Did you did you actually sing for them? No, we didn't. No. Can you imagine singing in front of the other brothers? No, no, no. no I would be scared <laughs> no. shitless. I, I I totally understand. Yeah, it would, it would all come out like a big frog. Yeah, it would. Yeah, it would be. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So much yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah. That's but still, you know, they, yeah. They, yeah, they came into our lives, you know, yeah. quite a few times after yeah. that. Yeah. You know, so, so because so, it is kind of interesting, you know, the north of England is is not exactly known for the sweet sounds that we get from the Hollies. It's, you know, the, the harder sounds, uh, you know, Black Sabbath and some of these, uh, you know, the industrial north, if you will, uh, and, and some of these heavier bands that come later have that. But, you, you know, it is interesting. You guys have these sweet, beautiful harmonies there uh, at that time. And would it be fair to say that it really it was because of the, the Everly Brothers and you two being able to, you know, do that and then build from there. Well, you know, we could interpret songs, you know, uh, mm. we, we, we'd listen to songs and we'd know whether that, that would be the type of song that we would like to sing. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Well, unfortunately for us, when we first started recording, we hadn't really got into the writing mode uh, as much as we should have done. Mm-hmm. So therefore, our, our producer came up with the ideas of, of what we should record. Yeah, uh, and, yeah a lot uh, of covers, and, right. Yeah, I mean, eh, it wasn't know, unusual but... at that time. The Stones were doing a lot of covers uh, at that time, you know. Uh, so, I, and I think a lot of the other uh, the English bands were doing that, right? Yeah, but I think it was our sound that actually sold yeah. uh, the song. Yeah. Uh, in in the way that we uh, did our interpretation right. of like the coasters searching and and just like me. Yeah. Uh, that sort of thing, and then getting into more listenable songs. Until we got to the point where we wrote We're Through, which I think was our first single. And it got a hit. We thought, there you go. Now we're on A-sides. So before that, we were always doing B-sides, which mm-hmm. most of the time, I always thought the B-side was as good as the A-side, but we didn't have the say-so. Yeah, It was down yeah. to our producer. Right, right. Yeah. All right, so take me to 62, because that, that's when you guys kind of really, uh, I, I think, get the attention of uh, of the record companies. Uh, and it may be even about the year that you guys called yourselves the Hollies, uh, if I, yeah. I, I, I remember right. It was late 62. Yeah. yeah so, but it was in 63. Since 63 when we signed the deal. Yeah, so were you guys familiar with the other British groups that were kind of formed around that time? Were you, you know, were you guys all on the same circuit uh, uh, and all of that? Yeah. Uh, you know, when rock and roll came out, we, we all turned into a band. You know, Graham and I got into a band. And that was because a, a particular guy um, came to see us when we were in a club in Manchester. And we were quite well known for the duo we were at that particular time. And he came to us and said, well, I think you're great, but you need a guitarist. Mm-hmm. And, and this chap was like a small guy and he was virtually bald. And we thought, well, you know, do we really need someone like this? And he says, well, let me show you what I can do. His name was Pete Bockin, and he was the most unlikely looking guy to be able to do what he did. Because we met him at Graham's flat and, and he walked in and, and we asked him where his guitar was. And he said, it's here. And it was, he was carrying a flat case. You know, we thought, well, okay, and and he opened it up, and it was the first Fender Stratocaster Ooh. we'd ever seen. Ooh. And um, and he said, well, what do you want me to show you? So we said, okay, we're going to sing Bebop Lula, and we want you to do the solo. Well, you know what the solo's like in Bebop Lula. It's like, it's a famous, famous yeah. riff. Yeah. And he did it perfectly. No, perfect. Perfectly. Mm-hmm. And then we went through all the Buddy Holly songs, played the solos. And then we went through every other song that we knew, played the solos. And the guy was brilliant on everything. So he was in the band. Right. And there, so we had a guitarist, then we had to get a bass player. And then we had to get a drummer. And we used to have people sit in and we made a foursome and we started doing more rock and roll songs. You know, bringing other, other rock into it rather than just doing straight Everly's and, and Buddy Holly things. You know, so um, that was the big change from us, from being a duo. Into a, into a, a real rock and roll band. It, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now in 62, 63, were you shocked by the Beatlemania that uh, took over the country? <laughs> no, I thought it was fantastic because I was a part of it. Oh, well, it I, I, that was that. my next question. Is what, <laughs> what was, was there a similar reaction to the Hollies? Well, you know, if it hadn't have been for them, and I will say this, if it hadn't have been for John Paul Ringo, uh, or Pete Best, should I say, at the beginning, because, you know, yeah. let's not forget what Pete, what Pete did. Was he was, he was the original, yeah. you know, and, and I'm sure they got rid of him because he was too good looking. 
But anyway, <laughs> there are stories that there's some possibility to that. But I know. Uh, I know. So anyway, I mean, without the Beatles, none of it would have happened. Right. Right. Like like most things, mm-hmm. you know, there's always got to be a first. So it was. It was, There was some coattails uh, to uh, uh, this giant explosion, uh, and you guys benefited from some of that as well. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we had to take over our little spot, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and someone said, if you think of a dartboard, you know what a dartboard is? Yeah. yeah it, it has segments, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So each one has to be in their right segment to be that popular group within that popular sphere with their fans, etc. So, you know, I suppose then it was like the Beatles, it was the Rolling Stones, then the Hollies, and then the other groups that were around at that particular time yeah, doing all different things. And uh, that started yeah. to come a little bit later, uh, following like the mod uh, scene, which was like more 65. Uh, True. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. All right. So did you guys get that same sort of wild female reaction that, you know, yeah, we're yeah. all conditioned to see when the early Beatles showed up. Yeah, we did. I mean, there was a lot of screaming going on for everybody, you know. I mean, sometimes it was quite dangerous. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was dangerous. You yeah. had to be very careful on stage that you didn't reach out too far to anybody because you'd be pulled off stage and that'd be it, you know. <laughs> but, Eaten but by a pack of hyenas, huh? <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't think that anybody could hear us for the first three or four years. Right, right, right. That's uh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that story many, many times. So, yeah. uh, all right, so... Um, you know, as the early 60s move into the mid and later 60s, unlike some of the other top British invasion bands um, from us, Americans, British invasion, you know, the Hollies kind of stay close to that original. And, and I may be using the wrong term, but it's the only one I know is that Mersey beat sound. You know, it's, it's just sweet harmonies. Uh, you know, how, the, dare, er, how <laughs> dare you say Mersey beat sound? <laughs> how dare you? Oh, God, no, you can't say that. We were not Mersey Beat Sound. No, that, that was all down to the Liverpoolians. Right. They were Mersey Beat. Right, right, right. No, no, no. I mean, you know, you know, John and Paul, their sound, you know, because they used to sort of bounce off each other, one taking lead. See, there was only certain times that Graham took lead in songs, you know, and there were always sort of a middle eight bit, et cetera, et cetera. But he never sang a full song on his own uh-huh. uh, in, in the early days. No, it was you. You were the lead vocalist, and uh, Graham yeah. was the high harmony, right? That's right. But you see, in the Beatles, it was Paul, yeah. and it was John. Yeah, and, and they was... mixed their things around a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, as you move into this, you know, the psychedelic period and the hippie movement and that sort of stuff, you know, mm. you guys kind of stay with the formula that has been working now for, for several years. Um, and, and it wasn't for lack of trying. Um, you know, King Midas in Reverse comes to mind, uh, released yeah. in the summer of 1967 and recorded at, at Abbey Road. And, it, and yeah. it sort of has that Sergeant Pepper feel, but with the distinct vocals of the Hollies. And by the way, you guys could outsing the Beatles any day. Um, but it, well, thank you very much. But it, it, <laughs> My wife keeps telling me that. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, hey, I actually went back and, and you know, I, of course, I, you know, uh, you know, you know the Beatles catalog, uh, you know, backwards and forwards. And, sure. you know, I went back and was like, wow, these these guys are really, really good, uh, knowing now what I know as opposed to when I was a kid. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I'm serious. I, you know, you, you guys get out seeing the Beatles. Uh, and that is, uh, that's a big compliment. Yeah. Well, just let me tell you about, like, you know, uh, King Madison Reverse. Yeah, yeah. What happened with that song was that, 
you know, we'd forgotten that there was an album called Sgt. Peppers, you know, <laughs> and, and, and once that had been done, there wasn't anybody going to better that in any way whatsoever. Yeah. So yeah. personally, and also this is what our producer thought, uh, it was a mistake picking a song like King Midas in reverse and trying to put it in the same category as, you know, the Sgt. Pepper's sound. Uh-huh. It wasn't going to work. But Graham was quite adamant that he wanted to have his way with this song. So he was given, actually, you know, full reign to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was a great orchestra there. Yeah. And, uh, and, and everything else was put on. But it had been done before. Yeah. Yeah. In, in hindsight, the song, uh, you know, you know, 50 years on, you know, sounds fantastic. Um, but at that moment, I can see sonically you're out of your lane. And uh, that's right. It wasn't what we normally did, you yeah. know, and we were a group that actually they used to say we were hit makers, mm-hmm. you know, but everything we put out. Yeah, because Carrie Ann had just preceded it. Uh, and I think Jennifer yeah. Eccles is the song right after it. So, yeah. Jennifer Eccles was Graham and I and my wife and his wife at that particular time Names, wrote right. that song yeah. as a joke. Oh, oh really? Yes, really? we yeah, did. Because I know it's a, it's a combination of their names. But yeah, but Graham was so disappointed that King Midas didn't do what he thought he should have done. Yeah. Um, that we, we were together one night in, in his uh, apartment, and we said, well, let's just write a song that, you know, that maybe Ron would like to have us, have us record. Yeah, Ron Richards, so, your, your producer. Ron Richard, yeah. yeah. And and we came up with Jennifer Eccles because Jennifer is my wife. Uh, Eccles is Rose Rose's maiden name. And and we all thought about what we, the things that we did at school, you know, on white chalk written on red brick and love, kiss, hate or adore. That was my wife's line. And and we thought, oh, well, there you go. That's that's quite a silly song. Mm-hmm. And we took it in. So well, we've got this to play with you. You probably won't like it. We did. And he said, OK, let's record it. Mm-hmm. And, it and it went to number two. So, you know, you, you never know what's going to happen with music these days. You know, you no, can think something's great. And it, you have all these uh, people and, to your point today, algorithms uh, assuring uh, some form of success. And that's I still think you never know. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think you you can really pinpoint what is going to make a quote unquote hit uh, because there's too many unknown factors, uh, you know, culturally, yeah. um, you know, timing that affect um, even a, a well-crafted, uh, fantastic song. It just has to show up at the right moment or it could be. Yeah, by. but I think the King Maddish, if we had done it in the way that we normally did keeping it within the group and the, yeah, and, it's and a the great rhythm song. And yeah yeah it probably would have done better than it did mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's just like you know orchestration and strings and cellos and trumpets and cymbal clashes uh-huh. you know i think that actually went away from what the lyric was trying to say but anyway that's only my yeah. that's what i think yeah <laughs> So Graham leaves to go to that uh, super group uh, he's been yeah. out of since. Uh, and I, you guys must have been kind of devastated uh, at that moment, I would assume. Well, you know, something like that, sometimes it can shock you into a way of thinking, uh, well, what do I do next? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because you moved and, on and now without yeah. Nash's high harmonies, the Hollies do begin to sound a little tougher and maybe better suited for the 1970s. Well, let's put it this way. Um, when you're the lead singer of a group, uh, you you are a part of the main sound of the group. Yeah. 
And and having had that sort of uh, way of life uh, for a while, there was no way that I was going to sort of lie down and say, oh, well, that is over. You know, so we decided to look around for somebody to replace Graham. And uh, fortunately, uh, Terry Sylvester came along. Um, the only thing that was wrong with him, that he was a Liverpoolian. <laughs> so, so he brought that, the Mersey Beat sound to you guys. <laughs> that was his only downfall. Uh, but, but anyway, no, I mean, Terry fit in straight away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you've only got to hear those harmonies on uh, Air That I Breathe and yeah, Ian Heavy. Yeah. Well, and, all, it, and all the other songs. Yeah, it, you know, uh, so often uh, before you guys took uh, songs written by others and then turn them into these huge classics. You know, how did you decide to record the ultra ballad, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother, uh, originally written by uh, Bob Russell and Bob Scott? Yeah. Uh, well, oh, and then there was some little piano player that um, that played oh, yeah, on that. Was, uh, Reg, yeah, yeah. Uh, Reg something little or other, Reggie right? Yeah. Reggie, Reggie, yeah, Reggie, little, right. <laughs> <laughs> little Reggie. That's what we used to call him, <laughs> little Reggie. But he was brilliant. You know, but but you know, before before we we, we met him, uh, like you know, it was Tony. Tony used to go around publishers' offices looking for songs, mm-hmm. and the, the, this particular one uh, was more or less lying on a desk. And he asked what he was called because he liked the actual title of it. You know, he, he could see what it was called, and he said, "Oh, this song has been around for a while, and nobody seems to uh, to want to do it." So. Tony says, well, let me have a listen. And he did. And he said, well, I'd like to play it to, to my producer. And uh, when he brought it in, the, the actual lyric of the song, as far as I was concerned, was, was so strong, you know, and meant something in a way that was different from any other song. You know, it, it was a song of hope and help. And, you know, and I thought that's really a nice song. It's more spiritual than, than anything else. Well, I think the, the original idea of the song does harken back uh, to uh, uh, past history and yes. in a folk sense of folk stories. And that this, um, I believe, was a Scottish story, if I remember right, of uh, of a young girl uh, being asked in uh, desperate times, you know, uh, you know, is carrying your brother uh, from point A to point B difficult? And she says, no, he's, you know, he ain't heavy. He's my brother. So meaning that this is just duty. This is just what I'm supposed to do. Right. Well, I've not heard that one before. Oh, really? Oh, I, I, I no. went and looked it up. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, there was an old film, which I did see with my mother many, many years ago uh, with Spencer Tracy. Uh-huh. And it was a film called Boys Town. Yeah. Yeah. And the story is about an orphanage mm-hmm. where, of course, all unwanted children, mainly boys, would be put into this and looked after by this particular priest. Now, it's a true story because it actually did happen. Mm-hmm. There was a, a school called Boys Town and, and there was like a college there and an orphanage which looked after boys. Mm-hmm. And whenever they sort of left the actual school that they were in, they were given a ring. And on each ring, there was a picture of, of a chap. It looks very like Jesus to me, but it, it, and then he's carrying a child. And the actual words on it is, he ain't heavy, Lord, he's my brother. Right. And they were given these rings, one each, when they left. And they became the brotherhood. And that's what the song was written about. 
So, you know, there's two ways. Either way. Uh, many either ways way, you can look at a story. It, yeah. it says the right, the right thing. You yeah. Know? yeah. Well, you hit the nail on the head. It's a very spiritual song. Yeah. And it's, it's about a family or uh, the ultimate love of that in a, you know, a sibling or uh, platonic way. It's, uh, it's more, you know, about humanity uh, than anything yeah, else. Right. Right? Yeah. Everybody is a brother to each other. Right. 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 Should right, be. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. All right, so I have to ask about what I think is your most sublime vocal, and that is 1974's The Air That I Breathe, uh, uh-huh. a, a song that should be on every wedding playlist. Uh, <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Yeah, you must be happy about that. So, uh, how, how did you get that emotion and vocal done? I, I'm telling you, I, I could listen to that song every day. Uh, it just it brings a tear to my eye every time I hear it. Well, you can thank Phil Everly for that, because when I first heard that song, I went to see my producer one day and was stopped by his secretary, Shirley. And she said to me, Alan, I've got this album here. There's a song on it you should listen to. I, I think that you'd sing it really, really good. And it was Phil Everly's album. It was uh-huh. a solo album. And the, he was singing The Other I Breathe. And the way that he sang it, and the backing that he had on it was very simple, but it's a very truthful song, the way he was singing it. I, I could feel the emotion in his voice that he was singing about a real love, you know. And straight away I said, we've got to record that. And we took it to the, uh, again, it's one of those things, you take it to your producer and he has to say yes, uh, which he did. And And when we recorded that, I tried to get the emotion that I'd heard in Phil Everly's voice, into the lyric of that song, uh-huh. and and I, and I think I got there. Uh, you most certainly got there. <laughs> so, mm. And uh, I may be wrong, but uh, an ode to Jennifer as well. Uh, well, <laughs> I, well, you better be careful be how you answer this. <laughs> well, you know, when you think about emotion, you know, mm. you you have to think about the fullness of emotion, yeah. not just the singularity of it. Mm-hmm. You know, that song has to make everybody think of themselves. Universality, you know? right. And, and right. the people, you know, you can reverse that. It doesn't be, have to be a man to a woman. It could be a, a woman to a man. Yeah. You know, it's just that I was singing to a lady. Right. So. Well, we know who that lady would be. <laughs> I mean, if I'd have written that song, that would have been who I was thinking of when I wrote it. Right. My wife. Right, right. right. All right, by the late 1970s, the, the music tastes had changed so much. Um, but you guys soldier on. Um, I think Stop in the Name of Love was yeah. 29 in 1983, and I think that's the last time you charted in the top 40. Uh, yeah. You, you know, what did you think of those times? And and then why didn't the Hollies ever make it onto MTV like a lot of the other 60s and 70s bands did? Well, I'm, I'm looking at a photograph of me and Graham sitting next to each other, and we were doing one of the first MTVs. And uh, this photograph is from the time when we actually did do um, Stop in the Name of Love. Uh, so, yeah, we did a DVD for that, I think. You know, we, uh, we shot a DVD. That one shot, uh, was there a video that was, uh, that was created for that? Yeah, there was, yeah. It was one of Graham's ideas. Mm-hmm. It was one of, you know, bombers and people getting killed and things like that. Stop <laughs> <laughs> in the name of love, you know, which I didn't think that had anything to do with the what, what the first lyric was all about. But there you go. You know, <laughs> Graham took his lead on that one. Um, 
But you know, at that particular time, just before that, we'd had a hit in England. With it was like called Holidays, where they put all our songs together with a hand clap. It's just one of those things that was big at that particular time. Right. Uh, we did Top of the Pops, and Graham came across to do it because you had to have all the former members on it because they were on those tunes. And we were recording in the studio, and he came to see us, and he liked what he heard, and then he says, "Well, you know, can I get involved?" And uh, I didn't really want him to get involved. Really? No, no. Yeah, you you had moved on. You guys had had your own personality now uh, away from him, right? Yeah, and uh, he knows this. Mm -hmm. You know, now he does know that, you know, that I wasn't very, very happy about the boys making the decision that, you know, Graham should come back and record with us, etc. Because as far as I was concerned, the album was going great anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, but, you know, I was voted against, so I had to go along. And I'm with agreeing to that. Then I, you know, I had to go to America to record in Graham's studio. Uh, then we had to make the video. In L.A.? Away. In L.A., yeah. yeah there on Sunset and, uh, Boulevard. At that particular time, we mm-hmm. did MTV, you know. Mm-hmm. Which then we did a tour, you know. And um, it was okay, but it wasn't any, it didn't seem to be any better than it was with him or without him, you know. Mm-hmm. It was still the Hollies. What I couldn't understand with that is why he wanted to do it. I really couldn't understand that. Was it during a time when uh, CSN was uh, on the rocks? Uh, well, you know, I, I didn't know what kind of life he was going through at any particular mm-hmm. time, you know, of him leaving, because he, when the, the times that I did see him, he was always very happy in what he was doing. So really, at that particular time, when he wanted to come back to the group, I just couldn't understand why he wanted to do it. Oh, maybe he just missed you. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, you guys are lifelong friends. <laughs> well, we are. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's funny. These days, you know, it's not uncommon for bands to, you know, go on quote-unquote hiatus uh, and, right. uh, and you know, go do some solo work or work with some other people and then come back. That's an accepted dynamic uh, in band politics these days, but that was not the case uh, in, yeah. in the early days. I mean, either you were in or you were out. And I, too, you know, kind of grew up with that ex- expectation but now i look back and say well why was that rule in place in the, in the first place i don't you know who cares go and do something yeah. come back go and do something else come back i mean you know uh, I, I guess it stems from the fact that uh, none of you guys thought that you would have careers more than five years and you True. know and here it is 50 years 60 years on yeah well you know i mean in 89 we had a number one yeah. Who would have thought that would happen again? And it was Ian Heavy, he's my brother. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, who would have thought that happened again? Right, you know, right, so. right. Crazy, crazy life. Let's talk a little bit about your solo work uh, during the time, because uh-huh. Re- Resurgence is your eighth solo record, so not yeah. your not your first rodeo here. No. Uh, why did you first feel the need to stretch out uh, of the Hollies in, in the early 70s? Um, well, I told you about the first time when I wanted to do my own album, and they said, no, you can't. Yeah. Well, and I said, well, yes, I can. So, <laughs> so I went <laughs> out and did is. my first. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I truly enjoyed. I think it was about two years that I was away from the band mm. uh, where they did get somebody in, and, and they did have a couple of hits, mm. which was great for them. Yeah. Uh, my albums, uh, I enjoyed doing the couple of albums that I did in that period. Yeah. Well, uh, first one is, not, my real name is Errol. My, yeah, my real name is Alan. I think it was Headroom after that. Or yeah, yeah. Headroom. anyway, you know. Headroom, Alan Clark. <laughs> I've got time. I wasn't born yesterday. 
yeah, yeah, well, you know, the early 70s was like the 60s, really. But anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but, you know, Tony, um, I have heard stories now from other people that the actual record company in America said to Tony, you better get Alan Clark back. I mean, that's quite common knowledge now, so I'm not, I'm not telling things out of, out mm-hmm. of context no. here. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's exactly what Tony did. He said, you know, will you please come back to the group? And I said, well, you know, I didn't want to leave in the first place. So, yeah, why not? So now you got to do both. Like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the things, well, as long as I can keep doing solo albums. And he said, well, sure, fine. Yeah, that, that'll be okay. Yeah. So everything was hunky-dory after that. Yeah. And uh, between 72 and 79, you produced six solo albums. Yeah, with Spence Proffer. He was the producer. Yeah. He was the guy that did the, the first American album that I did right until the last American album that I did, which was back in 1979, I think. Yeah, 1979 was, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, six solo albums. Uh, and then yeah. one in 1990. So w- what what happened to the 80s? <laughs> uh, the, the 80s been put on ice. It was only released in Germany. And uh, at that particular time, I don't think anybody wanted it, to be quite honest. Yeah. Which, um, and yeah, why do you, why do you think that is? I mean, I, it, you know, it's a, it's a weird decade where, you know, once we get into the 90s, uh, and maybe it's because of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, you know, people started to pay attention again to, you know, those early acts and how influential mm. they were and how huge they were, uh, mm. including yourselves. I, I don't know. Well, you know, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I don't put too much importance on why things happen or why things don't happen. Mm. You know, because it's life, things like that happen. So, you know, people who actually start to stop and say, well, why did that happen? You know, there is no answer to something. You just roll with it. You you have to roll with it. Into deep, you know, subconscious thinking of, oh, they don't like me or whatever. You know, that sort of thing. You know, I have no time for that sort of sentiment. So, no, there are things in your life that work and there are things in your life that don't. And and that particular album at that particular time didn't. I thought it was a good album. Mm -hmm. uh, And I've actually got the tapes. I own the tapes to it and everything. So I might actually put that back on the market. Maybe see not a bad think, idea. See what people think about it now. Yeah, I've talked to several people that uh, have taken albums that were shelved for one reason or another and uh, have put them out uh, to great success. Uh, so yeah. uh, I, I could that could definitely happen. Um, so in 1999, you bid adieu and, uh, like I said, become a proper English gentleman, all of Downton <laughs> Abbey, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> until 2010 when the Hollies are finally, and I mean this finally, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, yeah. So what were your first thoughts when you got the news that you guys had gotten that induction? Well, Graham rang me and uh, he said, you'll never guess what. And, and of course, I said, no, I won't. So tell me. <laughs> and and he said, we're going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. So what does that mean? And he says, well, um, you'll have to come over to New York. Um, what we'll do, we have to sing two songs, one of them being Bust Up, the other Long Cool Woman. Yeah. And you'll be inducted into the Hall. You know, it's a great show. I've done it myself once. And I said, well, what about me singing uh, the particular do? Because I haven't sung for 10 years, apart from the, the time that I was on the Albert Hall, <laughs> singing Bust Up with Graham, 
which is just one of those one-off things. And he said, well, we've got to do it. And I said, well, I know we've got to do it, but is there something that I can do? First of all, can I just go and get my throat checked out, et cetera, which I did. I went to all sorts of specialists to see if anything could be done to sort of help me in any any particular way. And they said, well, not to hit those notes that high. I don't think you're going to ever, ever do that again. Uh, so I got back to Graham. I says, well, look, I don't think it's going to happen in the way that you think it's going to happen. Uh, I don't think I can hit the notes. And he said, don't worry about it. He says, you just get over here, come with me, and we'll work it out, and we'll get it done. So I said, okay. And uh, that's when I started worrying about what was going <laughs> to happen. The notes, right. <laughs> yeah, he's going to make me do that. I know it. <laughs> he's going to make me do it. Uh, so uh, Jenny and I and, and my son Toby flew mm-hmm. over there, and we walked into the Waldorf Hotel. And after we booked into the rooms, I went into the, the ballroom where, they, where it's going to be uh, – because we were supposed to be doing what they call a dress rehearsal. Yeah. And I walked in, and there was Paul Schaefer and his band, and Graham, and everybody started clapping and saying, here he is, which made me feel really oh, good. You know, made I, me feel great yeah. to be welcomed like that. And who was standing on stage but the lead singer of Maroon 5, who really hadn't really made it that big at that particular yeah, Adam time. Adam Levine, right. Uh, yeah, Adam Levine, and the lead singer of, of Train. Yeah, Patrick Monaghan, yeah. And I thought, Hey, that'll work. <laughs> what, what, what are these, no, I thought, well, what are these oh, guys doing here? Yeah. <laughs> so I got on stage and Graham said to me, he said, these guys are going to help with the harmonies. I said, okay. So he says, okay, well, let's do this stuff. And thank God that my son Toby was in the room, you know, because I had to read, you know, his eyes on, you know, to, to know where I was doing any good or not. And, you know, after reading the band and, and how jolly it all was, it, I seemed to sort of get very sort of easy about the, the whole thing, settled down. And um, we did bus talk. And I looked at my son and he put his thumb up and I thought, oh, well, that's the first. <laughs> and then went into Long Cool Woman and the same thing happened. And everybody said that was great. Yeah. yeah. Now, me personally, I didn't think that I did as well as they thought I'd done. Because uh, that's the kind of guy I am, you know. I'm either perfect or I'm not. But they said no. That was great, Al. If you do that on the night, it'll be fantastic. Oh, emotionalism and, will carry the day. Yeah, definitely. You know, and yeah. you know, with those two guys there, nice, nice guys, nice boys, and I thank them ever so much for for getting me through that. You know, because right. I did need that help. But it gave me the confidence that um, that I thought that I'd, I'd never ever get back again about doing anything like that. So, yeah, it was a good injection of confidence. Very nice. Very nice. Um, who was the guy that took the mic away from Patrick Monaghan uh, oh, between well, Long Terry, and Woman? Was that Terry? Yeah, well, this- yeah, it was Terry. But you see what happened. Tony and Bobby said they couldn't make it because they were working, which I thought was a big mistake. Uh-huh. And, you know, and they should have been there because, you know, they shouldn't have actually said no to something of that momental. It was, you know, it was a big thing given to, you know, they should have been there, but they weren't. But everybody else was there. You know, Eric Haydock was there, and, and Terry was there. And for some unknown reason, Terry had got this in his head that, you know, that we'd fallen out with each other or whatever, and I didn't know what that was all about. Like, he was quite off uh, about the situation, and I, I really couldn't understand why. And so, you know, we kept apart. And then we got on stage, and, you know, we did bus stop. And then we did into Long Cool Woman, which Terry wasn't on. 
you know, Terry yeah. wasn't on yeah. Long Cool Woman. Right. So we were doing the song, and then I saw Terry creep on stage and grab the microphone, you know. Yeah. And I thought, that's not right. So I went to him, I took the microphone off him and, and gave it back. <laughs> back to Patrick. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he went, oh, and, and walked off. And I just thought, well, you know, you did the wrong thing there, mate. You know, yeah. you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. There was a guy there helping me out with a song that you weren't even on. You had no right to do that. Yeah. And I still don't understand the reason why he did that. You know, if, if I'd done anything to sort of put him into the situation where he doesn't think very much about me at the moment, I don't think. So I can't never understand that. Well, none of this matters. You you are in no, the Rock and Roll no, Hall of Fame. You and Graham of the Hollies. Uh, thankfully, uh, made it in and uh, will be enshrined forever. Uh, and I, yes, I think that's will. fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. now after 30 years, you've come back with resurgence. Um, yes. You know, were you writing the whole time, uh, even though no. you, you weren't really doing this? Or were, you, were you writing poems? or? Uh, you know, uh, no, no. I hadn't written anything for 18 years. Really? No, no, no sort of the best songs of uh, the last 20 or 30 years? This was all done in the moment. Done and dusted. I didn't even sing in the bathroom. Mm. Mm. No. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't, apart from the odd thing that I did with Graham, and, and they were just one-off things. But no, I had no intention to ever get back into doing what I'd done, you know, so well. As I said to you, you know, my voice really wasn't good enough to be able to do those songs. By the time it was about 99, the end of 99, that I decided, and the boys decided, that it was best if I didn't do it anymore because I didn't want to be remembered as someone that kets on trying and kets on trying and uh, and not be remembered for the guy. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, you know. So, and, and at the same time... This was not a um, temporary uh, problem that you needed to work through or even take some time off. I, I went to every specialist, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. You know, can't you stitch one in? Can't you do this? Can't you do... What, what drug can I take? And there just wasn't anything. They said that they would actually say, do this and you would be able to sing again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was it. Somebody tells you that, you have to accept it and carry on with your yeah. life. And so you did nothing from that point on until this ditty uh, appeared in your head and uh, you just happened to have uh, a guitar around. No, Christian, let me know. When I finished in 1999, my wife got cancer for the second time. Yeah, yeah, so said, I was yeah. doing the law. You know, it wasn't as if I was doing nothing. I had a lady that I've loved, you know, all my life, and I knew that I had to look after her yeah. and the family for what might be the, the rest of her life. We didn't know how long that would be. Right. You know, so your life changes into another mode of looking after a lot of other people's emotions because of that one particular thing that has happened in your life. Yeah. And that means looking after other people within this situation at the same, and also myself, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a full-time job. Yeah. Uh, luckily enough for me, you know, when you get past a five-year period, then you start to breathe, you know, and you think, well, you know, maybe this is going to be all right. Yeah. Thankfully, yeah. it she has was. been yeah. all right, yeah. right up until today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm very thankful for that. So, you know, when you say you're not doing anything, there was a lot happening in my life. Mm. Up Just, until not about two years. Just not music. Yeah. Right. Just right. two years ago yeah. when I sat down in, in my office and all of a sudden these words came floating into my mind for some unknown reason. And I wrote a poem, yeah. uh, which was called um, A Love That Never Blooms which I sent off to um, a friend of mine in America called Carla Olson, who I think is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And she's married to Saul Davis, who is a very old friend of mine. Yeah. So at one time used to work with Graham. And um, I asked Carla to put this poem to music, 
which he did. And I thought it was a wonderful job, but I didn't think for myself uh, that it, it went the right way for the way I wanted to, you know, for the lyrics to go. So she did decide that, you know, I said, well, okay, you know, if you want to do that song, you do it, Carla, and we'll call it, a, you know, a, a poem by Alan Clark. So I decided that I would do this song and try and put a vocal to it uh, somehow. And I played around with my Buddy Holly guitar, which was given to me by the Buddy Holly Education Foundation, which is a charitable organization to, to build things um, in America for kids that don't get any chance to do things musically, mm. you know, like a recording studio yeah. and, and also for health for young kids, which has gone on from strength to strength from when I got it in 19, when was it, 2010, I think. But oh, anyway, my Buddy Holly guitar was the first thing that I picked up to, to try and sing again, which I did. And I cobbled together music for these lyrics and I played it to my wife and she says, Alan, that's, I think that's really nice. Maybe you should carry on and, and do some more. So here we are. Yeah, it became more like a hobby, you yeah, know, yeah. because all of a sudden, you know, um, I started thinking about other things. Well, how do I make this better? Uh, got onto my computer, saw Garage Band. I know all about Garage Band because my son, Toby, who teaches uh, performing arts, uh, you know, and everything else in, in that field. He he writes a lot of songs, and I, I've seen him actually working in Garage Band, frightened me to death with all the wiggly lines that came up when he was doing things, and I thought, no way I'm going to go down that path. But he said to me, no, I'll come up and I'll show you how to get a couple of tracks up and, and how you have to do things. And he did, and that opened another world for me. Because yeah. I've never been sort of the type of person that, you know, that gets to anything new comes onto the scene, you have to have it because it does something different from something else. And having recorded all the ways that I have in the past, this was quite alien to me to do it this way. Oh, I bet. Yeah. But getting into doing it, I suddenly found a way, there were things that I could do on my own that I had needed other people, other my son, to help me with. Mm. And and I came, it came this became a, a sort of a room where, where I came. I looked forward to doing it. I wanted to do it all the time, you know, because it was so good. And uh, more lyrics came, and I put more music down. And I wanted to go that little bit further. So my son says, okay, you've got to get a mic. You've got to get a focus right. You've got to get speakers. You've got to get this. I'm surrounded by 16 guitars, which I've never played in the past 19 years hung on my wall and I took each one down and tried them out for their sound and, and I got into a, a way of life uh, that it, this meant more to me yeah, I felt it was the right way to do it for some reason I don't know why but then the songs you know I went from 2 track to 4 track to 8 track to 32 track and I was playing guitar solos and piecing them together putting bass on and I was really really enjoying myself and I thought this is great you know, I had a lot of uh, a lot of the family came in, my sons and my grandchildren, especially my 26-year-old uh, grandson, uh, Sam, who plays brilliant guitar on the album. And, like, you know, he's listening to it, and he's going, that's, that's great, Grandpa. He says, you know what, why don't you do something with it? I thought, oh, no. You know, if you start doing that, you get into a lot of trouble. You have to do things you don't want to do. But it got to a point, you know, where I'd finished eight songs, nine songs, and I got them to a point where I thought, oh, well, they're okay, but they need finishing. Something, you know, in my mind says, you know, we can do them better than this. Mm -hmm. I need a professional guy. Oh, of course. So of I course. Got, yeah. 
And so I got someone involved, you know. It's one of those things that he took over, and it, it was his own life, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. It just happened right, right. without any difficulty. Well, I'm so glad, first, that, that Jennifer is doing so well, and your daughter yeah. as well, who went through a bout of cancer. Yes, she did. And yeah. that, you know, after 20 years, things have opened, and that we have you back. I just think this oh. is just really fantastic. So what are plans going forward? Uh, well, the album was released in the States, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Yep. Um, there are plans for me to go over there to New York and do some radios. I'm also doing calls like this to you, Christian, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and other people and conference calls. But um, I think it's always best to be on the right side of the water to do these sort of things, to meet people. You know, I like talking to people face-to-face, to yeah, be quite honest. Yeah. Yeah. You get more of an emotion going with the face-to-face thing. Agree. Not agree. that I <laughs> please don't misunderstand no, me. I'm I think we did pretty place. good today, but uh, no, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it's always best in person. Yeah. So yeah, I'll be yeah I'll be going over to the states, mm. and uh, I'll be doing a bit of promotion. In the meantime, um, I'm going down to see my producer and play around with the idea of doing some uh, Holly songs. Um, in in the way that I can sing now, maybe put them all into sort of bluesy sound. Yeah. But it will be recognizable as me actually singing here in heavy or the air of that course, I breathe. Of course. But it, I won't be doing surging or just, ain't that just like me. It'll be more of the, the subtler songs, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. give the people a taste, but uh, you know, I think everybody would be glad to come out and listen to uh, Alan Clark's uh, solo work, uh, pieces of the Holly, and certainly a lot from the new album uh, Resurgence. Oh yeah, uh, Alan Clark, we we wish you all the great success you deserve with this new album. Thank you so much for being on Deeper Digs in Rock today. Thank you very much, Christian. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. I bought a ticket from the station Now I'm holding it in my hand I bought a ticket from the station Now I'm holding it in my hand I've been away so long I've been away too long, yeah, but I'm a coming home. Are you not entertained and educated, at least a little bit? Uh, A big, big thanks to Alan Clark. So nice to speak, not only with a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, but also a guy who has the talent to reinvent himself yet again. Um, There's a lot to be learned from him and his example. He actually didn't retire, uh, but just took a long vacation, and now he is back. Go out and give Alan a few ducats for his new album, Resurgence, now out and available wherever you get your good music. Also, if you didn't catch it in the interview, I am certain Alan Clark will be taking these new songs as well as reworking some of those old Holly-era tunes to fit the new voice and style. Uh, He is a master, so I have no doubts that it will be something extraordinary to see and hear when he gets it oiled up and ready to roar. Uh, Hopefully these live events, which uh, I'm sure will begin in the U.K., 
is there still a United Kingdom? I, I just have to ask. <laughs> anyway, let's all hope uh, if those Brits draw some numbers that he will take uh, the show over to the States. We will keep you updated and informed uh, when and if we hear uh, about any of this happening. Okay. Next week, we have something about as far from the country estates of jolly old England or even these 50 separate American states. Uh, we have an invading army of the Mongolian horde. Well, in a rock band, that is. Uh, I had the incredible pleasure of sitting down with a new band called The Who. H-U. Uh, four of the members, uh, each who play traditional instruments along with a classic rock uh, three-piece lineup behind them, uh, met me before one of the recent shows here in town for a chat uh, in original Kalka. Uh, so I needed a translator. And then I saw the show and was blown away. These guys are amazing and a wholly unique rock and roll experience. Please, Please come on back for that one. Until then, everyone should have a holly. <laughs> yes, holly jolly Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, or whatever you celebrate with friends and family. And always don't forget, keep up the rockin'. If I could make a wish, I think I'd Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology.